So, good morning. So good to be here. Thank you for uh, the invitation. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me to, to share the fellowship with you this morning and be able to share from God's word. Uh, I know uh, Jay from European Leadership Forum. He has come to serve us a number of times, and we are so thankful for the relationship we have, have with, with Jay and with um, Sunset Bible. So it's, uh, it's a joy for me to be here. And I want to share a, or preach from a text in Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 15. And I've given it the title, Why Are We Here? Moses, God, and the Meaning of Life. And I will read the text in a few minutes. But uh, before that, let me paint a kind of framework for you, uh, which hopefully will help us to, to understand what the text is, is actually uh, about. I don't know if you if you remember the uh, the feel good movie, my big fat Greek wedding. Quite a funny movie. And uh, the bride's father, he's a very peculiar man, and he thinks that window cleaning or, or the uh, liquid you use to clean window will solve nearly all of your problems in life. That's one of the peculiar thing with him. And the other is that he says all through the movie. He's so proud of his uh, Greek heritage and saying, give me any word and I show you how the root is Greek. I don't like his uh, thing about window cleaning, but this thing is actually true. That so many words have Greek roots, both in English and in Swedish. So think, for example, about all the words that end with logi. It means, it comes from logos, it means the doctrine of something. And then we put... uh, uh, some syllabus before that. So we talk about theology, the doctrine of God, or cosmology, the doctrine of cosmos, or anthropology, the doctrine of, of man, and, and biology, and so on. The, one of the most fancy words with this ending is this word, ontology. In Sweden, very few would resonate with that, with that word. What on earth is that? Ontology. That is the doctrine of being. The view we have of ultimate being. What is ultimate reality? Amongst philosophers, this is one of the key issues they are wrestling with. Ontology. What, what is being actually? Our being and if there is an ultimate being. And how can we understand that? And if you study philosophy and you go back to the old Greeks, you will find a lot of discussion about this. And one famous philosopher, Parmenides, he wrestled uh, with this. It is from him we have a saying that we know mostly in Latin, ex nihilo nihil fit. It means from nothing comes nothing. He realized that if you have nothing, then from nothing, nothing comes. It's illogical to think of something just causing itself or or erupting out of nothing. Now, from this principle, from nothing, nothing comes, he realizes, since there is something today, you and I are here, this globe is here, this universe is here, since something is here today, something must be eternal. That follows logically. 
something has always been there. There must be something that is an ultimate eternal being or reality. It's either this world that has always been there or it's something else that is eternal and has caused this world. And I think he's right on the money here. That's the options. This world is eternal or something else is eternal and has caused this world. Parmenides, he lands on the eternal thing is this world. Nature, as we can see around us, is ultimate reality. So he stands for what calls, we call naturalism. Nature is the eternal thing. Now, why on earth am I giving you this philosophical exposition? <laughs> and who cares about Parmenides? No one. But I tell you, naturalism is the dominant view of life in Western culture today. It's been for a long time like that in Europe. So when I deal with students on universities in Europe, the majority are naturalists. They agree with Parmenides saying, the eternal thing is this material world, nature. There's nothing beyond it or before it. And I understand that in the US, things move in that direction too. Naturalism is growing. Now, most people don't discuss these things uh, in this kind of philosophical way. If, if I think of ordinary Swedes, they would say, oh, I, I don't care about those abstract reasoning. My, what I'm interested is in is these kinds of questions. Meaning, love, value, hope. That is what I, I am searching for. And, well, if you want, you can, you can add God on the top. Some people are religious and they want to add God to their lives. But you can... You can try to find meaning in love and value and hope without God. So many people think like that. To illustrate it, uh, I'm a, a great ice cream lover. So if, if you take a, uh, an ice cream uh, cone here, people think that's, that's life. And then God is, is like the topping. And some people like that kind of topping. But it, it's really not life itself. It's a certain kind of thing you sprinkle uh, over your life. But some people don't like that sprinkle, so they have just the ice cream. This is such a huge misunderstanding of things. The reality is that you need to turn this upside down and say, well, if there is a God, then you have the possibility of talk to talk about meaning and love and value and hope because it all flows from God, if he is there. Now, when our culture now turns to the thinking of Parmenides and becoming naturalists, and they exchange God there at the bottom and put nature there, what then will happen? If you start to think this through, it's just darkness that follows. There is no meaning, no value, no love, no hope that follows from nature. And that's me. That's not me as a Christian telling you that. The atheistic philosophers are telling us that. Here's a quote from 
the uh, American atheistic philosopher, uh, professor of philosopher Alex Rosenberg, he says this, is there a God? This is just a quote from his book. (laughs) Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is. So he agrees with Parmenides. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be be moral then? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. And no answers to moral questions. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It's full of sound and furry, but signifies nothing. That's the direction our culture is moving now. By replacing God with nature as ultimate reality, everything important in life is just dissolving. And darkness follows from that. Now, I started with Parmenides. Let's move 1,000 years earlier in history to listen into another ontology, another view of ultimate reality. Let's, let's go to uh, the mountain of Horeb or Mount Sinai 1,000 years earlier. There is a failed human being wandering around in the desert. Um, He has become... uh, uh, He's taking care of uh, his father-in-law's animals. He had a glorious future as a young person, being brought up uh, in the royal house in Egypt and having education and wealth and power and a really rich future. And then he blew it, blew it all by killing a person and having uh, the royal house coming after him to kill him. So he had to flee out in the desert. And he has been a nobody for 40 years. He's a failure. And that's when we come into the text of Exodus chapter 3. So let's read God's word. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land 
from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you will open your word for us and that you will open us for your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This, this text is a text about identity. And they are the identity of two different persons that are uh, at the focus. Moses' identity, when he is confronted by the living God in the burning bush. And he is sent by God to deliver uh, the people from Egypt. And Moses react, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh. And in the Hebrew text, there is an, an I once more. And I bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He has no identity to solve the issue. And he realizes it. He's a small, fragile uh, human being. He's a failure. His identity is not the solution to anything. The other person's identity that is at the focus of the text is God's identity. And we have this world famous dialogue between Moses and God. Where Moses asks, what is your name? And God identifies himself by saying, I am being The verb for I am is four times in the text. So it's such a crucial part of what God is saying. He is. He is who he is. And that is God's name. And uh, it is those uh, four Hebrew consonants. We are not really sure how to pronounce it. Scholars guess that it should be pronounced something like Yahweh. We don't know. It's not a big thing. If you travel internationally, your name will, will be pronounced slightly different in different cultures when you're introduced, for example, uh, than how you pronounce it yourself. Uh, but that's, that's no big deal. 
This is God's name. I am. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And if you read the Old Testament, you will see that again and again and again. I am the Lord, Messiah 42 and 8. That is my name. And it's those four uh, consonants, Yahweh. If you put some statistics uh, in the Bible, it's there 6,828 times. It's there in all the books of the Old Testament except three. Uh, <clears throat> so this is, this is really crucial, God's name. What does it mean? What does it mean that God is the great I am? Let me, let me read to you from Alexander McLaren, um, a Scottish theologian and preacher and he says this about God's name listen and this is his comments on Exodus 3 that is to say that the fire that burns and does not burn out which has no tendency to destruction in its very energy and is not consumed by its own activity is surely a symbol of the one being whose being derives its law and its source from himself who only can say that I am that I am, the law of his nature, the foundation of his being, the only condition of his existence being, as it were, enclosed within the limits of his own nature. You and I have to say, I am that which I have become, or I am that which I was born, or I am that which circumstances have made me. He says, I am that I am. All other creatures are links. This is the staple from which they all hang. All other being is derived and therefore limited and changeful. This being is underived, absolute, self-dependent and therefore unalterable forevermore. Because we live, we die. In living, the process is going on of which death is the end. But God lives forevermore. A flame that does not burn out. Therefore, his resources are inexhaustible. His power unwearied. He needs no rest for recuperation of wasted energy. His gifts diminish not the store which he has to bestow. He gives and is none the poorer. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. He loves and he loves forever. And through the ages, the fire burns on unconsumed and undecayed. This is the alternative ontology. Nature is not ultimate. The great I am is. There is a source for this universe and therefore a source for you and me. And we recognize this kind of language from the book of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. It makes all the difference in the world. If you can view your own life, your own existence, in the light of the great I am. Now in this text, we learn four things about this ultimate being. Four things about this ultimate being. First, God is a personal God. He's not just existence. He is personal existence. He is the great I am. Now this is in in stark contrast to all the eastern 
understanding, Eastern religions of the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on, they would say, yeah, naturalism is wrong. There is something beyond the material world, which is the ultimate. But they would say it's impersonal spiritual energy. But in this text, we learn that God is a person, and I am, and he relates personally to the beings he has created. And he calls on Moses. Moses, come, come. And he speaks to Moses. And he works within the life of Moses. And he calls on us today. We are not talking about a philosophical concept of an ultimate reality. We are talking about a personal God who has created you and me and who calls on us. We might feel this morning as a failure, as I'm sure Moses did, after being wandering around in the desert for 40 years, he had a royal starting point. And God called him to himself and put his life in a totally new direction. And so God uses our name and says to me, Stefan, Stefan, come, come. And he calls your name and calls you to himself. He is the personal God. That's why we can say God is love. Only a person can love. Secondly, the God Moses approaches in the desert is the God of history. He's the ultimate source of this universe. But he has not left the universe. Even though we have turned our backs on God, he has not turned his back on us. The whole biblical story tells us that God is involved in history and that he has a great rescue plan for humanity. And that is how he is introducing himself to Moses. I'm the God of your father, and not only of your father, one generation back, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm the God who called Abraham to be the starting point of something new into this world. History is like a stage where we are acting, and we are making choices, and we can make a difference. But even more important, on this stage of history, God is active. God is doing a work. God is calling people to himself. And God is on the move to ultimately destroy all the darkness, all evil. And ultimately, sin and death. So, life is, if the Bible is true, is a drama. And we are involved in that drama where there is a, a huge struggle between good and evil, between God and the evil one. And we are involved in that struggle. It is a big drama. But in that drama, there is, um, there is victory. God will, of course, uh, turn out... Uh, as the one who, uh, uh, who is victorious. And God works in history and works through human beings. And that is, if you continue to read in Exodus, God is working through Moses 
and, uh, and, his, uh, and his people. This is not something of the past. God is still working today, working in his church, working to promote the, uh, the kingdom of God. So we can be part of God's working in our time. Maybe not, uh, uh, we will see something as dramatic as the, the exodus and the Red Sea being parting, but we can still be part of God's continuing work on the stage of history. So that's the calling for us this morning, to renew our commitment to be a part of what God is doing in history. And history is this unfolding yesterday, today, tomorrow, and we can be involved in what God is doing. We, of course, know much more than Moses about God's victory. Since we have seen what God continued to do in the people of Israel and then in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. So we have so much more reasons to be involved in God's work than Moses had because we have seen so much more of what God is up to. Thirdly, in the text, God is the God of liberation. This is really moving. So much of what's going on in the world today, and if you go back in history, is so sad and so dark. And the situation here is really dark. Here you have a, a people group that had um, migrated from, uh, from great suffering because of the drought. They have come down to Egypt to survive. But there, after a few generations, they are in, enslaved and tortured, you can say, by the Egyptians. And they are in a horrible situation without any chance of liberating themselves. They are stuck. And then God says to Moses, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, and I have come down to rescue. What a wonderful words. And I think we can apply them to our lives too. We are nobodies in the eyes of the world and you know, for, for the public uh, of, of this, this earth. But God says to us, I have seen, I've heard your prayers. I'm concerned also by your life. And I've come down to rescue. And that includes us. So God is a God of liberation. And the story is, of course, a wonderful illustration of the greater uh, liberation we have seen in Jesus Christ. When God rescues the people from slavery in Egypt, it illustrates how God later on will, uh, will rescue us from sin and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So God is a God of liberation. That means he's, he's a good God. We believe in an ultimate reality that is love, that is goodness. And not love and goodness just as an abstraction, but love in action. We know what love actually is because Jesus died for us. So love, according to the Christian faith, is not just a warm, fussy feeling. <laughs> it's much, much deeper and wider and much more dramatic. Ultimately, love is seen in what Jesus has done for us when he took our place and carried away our sin. So God is the God of liberation. And fourthly, 
God is a holy God. So many Christians today have kind of problems in keeping together what I just said about a God who is love and goodness and who liberates with the concept of a God who is holy and who also draws a line and who punishes what is evil, who stands against darkness. And people feel you have, you have to choose and you paint God in, in one of the colors. You will never find that in the Bible. Uh, the Bible holds together the picture of God as merciful, as filled with love and compassion and goodness, willing to forgive. But he is not a God who can see through the fingers in terms of, of evil and sin and darkness. Who just can, he cannot say, let's move on. Let's forget what has happened. That would be a morally corrupt God if he did not take evil seriously. In the text, Moses suddenly see the, the burning bush, not an unusual sight in the desert. Uh, the unusual thing here is that the bush is burning, but is not destroyed. How come? Why isn't the bush destroyed by the fire? And his curiosity is aroused and he, he uh, thinks, I, I need to go and, and see, what is this? What a strange phenomenon. It's just, the fire is there. It's burning and burning, but nothing happens to the, to the bush. What's going on? So he go over there. And then he heard this voice, Moses, Moses. And he approaches closer. But then something happens. God stops him. Very strange. God calls call him to himself. Come, come. And then suddenly, stop. Don't come closer. And Moses take off his shoes and falls on his knees. Starting to realize, wow, I'm not standing before a burning bush. This is something completely different. I'm standing before the ultimate reality, the living God, who is the source of this universe. Why, why did God choose to reveal himself in, in a burning bush, in fire? I think one of the reasons could be that we as human beings... We think fire is really attractive. I come from the, the dark and cold uh, country up in the north, Sweden. If you lit a fire in the winter, you can be absolutely sure that people will just be drawn to the light and the warmth. It's really attractive and it's beautiful. At the same time, fire is really dangerous. A big fire and you have no chance. So it's a, it's a beautiful picture of who God is. He is the source of all goodness and love and, and beauty. Nothing can be more attractive than God. But he is a dangerous God. He's really dangerous because he will consume and destroy everything that is evil and darkness. It cannot coexist. The deeper question is not really why didn't the, burn, uh, the bush burn out and become consumed? The bigger issue is, why wasn't Moses destroyed? 
How could he survive the meeting with the living God? How could he fall on his knees and, and then start to have a dialogue with God and later, later stand up on his feet and go away? Why didn't the fire consume Moses? And this is at, at really at the heart of, of, of the Christian faith. I think it's important for us to see that God must be a God who punishes evil. If God did not punish evil and opposed evil, he would be, would be a lower being than we. Because when we see real evil, we react and say, that must be stopped and that must be punished. Internationally, when there have been really horrible war crimes, we establish uh, the court in, in Hague who has to deal with it because you cannot say, let's forget it and move on. Let's turn the page. No, what has happened is real and it needs to be dealt with. And all the evil needs to be punished, actually. So if God would not do that to world history, he would be a lower being than you and I. And we would have no reason to worship him. You don't worship what is lower than yourself. But all through the Bible, God is a holy God who cannot compromise with evil. But Moses, he was not a holy human being. He was a murderer. <laughs> he was a failure, a sinner. How could he survive this meeting with God? Now, this text does not go into uh, explaining that in, uh, for us. But there is a hint of something really interesting. <clears throat> you might notice that the text did not start it with God revealing himself in the burning bush, but it says the angel of the Lord appeared in the, in the bush. And then without explaining why, the text then immediately shows that it is the Lord himself speaking and presenting him as the great I am. Students of the Old Testament have noticed there are a number of places, 10, 12 uh, passages in the Old Testament, where this mysterious angel of the Lord appears. And it's obvious it's not one of the angels because seamless the text goes from the angel of the Lord appeared and then the Lord is the one who is speaking and acting. As if the angel of the Lord is identified with the Lord himself. And it's not given any explanation in, in the Old Testament. But theologians all through history have realized the angel of the Lord, who is identified with the Lord himself in, in the same texts, is none other than the person that we later in history knows as Jesus of Nazareth. This is the pre-incarnate son of God who later on became a human being in Jesus of Nazareth. And that is not a speculation from the theologians. There is a clear evidence of that from the mouth of Jesus himself. In John chapter 8, 
there is this dramatic conversation between Jesus and his critics. And the conversations end ends with Jesus saying, before Abraham was born, I am. He's claiming not only to have existed 2,000 years earlier than this, this, when this discussion took place, at the time of Abraham, but he's referring to himself with the name that God revealed for Moses, the great I am, the God of eternity, ultimate reality. Why did Moses survive? Because of the angel of the Lord. That is because of Jesus of Nazareth, who bore away, took away the sins of Moses and the sins of the world. And that's why Moses could survive and stand up and be sent into Egypt and to lead his people out from slavery. It's the same for us today. The reason why we can openly and freely and joyfully worship God and approach him and not being consumed by, his, uh, by, the, by this holy God, but being able to say, I'm a child of God, is because of Jesus, the angel of the Lord who has taken away our sin. What a different ontology we have compared to the darkness that our culture uh, now are embracing, saying nature is ultimate reality. So this morning is for us to remember what is the source of everything. It is the great I am, the personal God, the God who is involved in history, the God who is involved in, in history to liberate and save and rescue. The holy God who does never compromise with evil, but has given us a way we sinners, to joyfully stand before him. Let's pray. Lord, we bow ourselves before you, you who are the great I am, the source of everything, the source of our being. And we are just amazed of your love towards us, that we can approach you this morning and that we can call ourselves your children and that you are sent us to continue and be part of the work you are doing in history. I pray that you will deepen our faith, that you will let our love for you grow, and that you will use us uh, as you used Moses in his uh, lifetime. We praise you, we give you honor, and we do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.